Hey, Michael, super great to have you here. It's really awesome to see people who are on the podcast circuit and have something different to say every single time. So welcome to the studio. Super glad to have you here. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. And I, I love I love doing podcasts primarily because one of the things that I see is my calling in kind of the season of life is as much as I can sharing, you know, what I've learned from the process. I, I feel like I've had a lot of uh, been really privileged to be in a lot of situations where I was able to learn firsthand some things. And so uh, if I can be a part of demystifying, you know, the entrepreneurial experience for people, if I can be a part of sharing some of the things I've learned and, and hopefully helping people learn from some of the mistakes I've made where they don't have to make them, then I, I love doing it. Yeah, which is amazing. I, you know, um, when you just say the entrepreneurial experience, you know, I, the themes that show up in the conversations that we have, it, it's amazing how similar these themes, these things that people uh, go through at the different stages that they're in. And it's like, that's why this, this sort of entire platform of the Entrepreneur Studio exists is to unpack those themes and to have uh, a, a really credible people share things that can kind of unlock you know, these, uh, these challenges and these things along the way. So I'm, I'm super, super glad that you're here. We're going to talk about how you've grown such a meaningful business, but I, I want to start a little bit at the beginning, right. And sort of what was the thing that like, uh, what, what were your entrepreneurial roots? So I, I actually do not feel like a person that, you know, was that entrepreneurial when I was younger. Um, I, I actually felt like my brother was more entrepreneurial than I was. And so in, in fact, if you had, asked me at 28 or 32, do you view yourself as an entrepreneur? I probably would have said no. It's it's kind of, uh, it, it's been an interesting experience in my 30s of realizing like, oh, I'm kind of the definition of what people think about when they think about an entrepreneur, but I haven't even thought about myself that way for a while. And so, you know, one encouragement I'd offer to anybody is that I think everybody's actually entrepreneurial. If you think about the entrepreneurial process, it's really, it's about kind of creating a theory about something that, that could work and then kind of experimenting and testing and iterating on that. And it turns out we actually do this all the time in our daily lives. Yeah. You know, like dating is entrepreneurship. Yeah. We don't think about it that way, but like, so there's all of the, you know, the way that we dress, there's all these things that we actually use the entrepreneurial process, but then we get really like tense when you try and take that process and apply it to business. So one of the things that- It's because money's on the line. Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. And and all of a sudden we feel like there's some kind of, you know, different magical way of doing things. Mm -hmm. So one of the most encouraging things I can offer to people is I didn't view myself as an entrepreneur um, for a long time. What helped give me confidence was, you know, working with my brother and the feedback of some other people. Um, and I think that uh, anyone has the capability of being an entrepreneur and, and most people are already using the skills that, you know, being a successful entrepreneur requires in their everyday life. They just don't think about it that yeah. way. So it's really just helping people see, hey, the things that you already do well, it's mapping that to this different situation. And, and certainly that takes some time to figure out how to do that. But uh, I think I think there's a lot of people that are capable. The world needs more entrepreneurs. And, and so I love being a voice of encouragement to other people like, hey, you can do this because there was a point in my life where I really needed that voice. Oh, that's really well. good. Well, you know, you, you, you know, we've got Simple Modern, you know, this Love is, uh, this wasn't just for you. We, <laughs> we use these all the time. And when uh, it was like, hey, you know, Michael would want to come, at, you know, and, and have a conversation with us. I was like, okay, well, great. Well, we drink all their stuff. So. I love it. I uh, drink out of all their stuff. So, but, but before you did this, did you have, you know, other businesses that you'd done or were there, were there maybe other uh, interests that you had earlier in your career? Sure. So I'll, I'll share my career arc, which is, I would say no 
entrepreneur has a typical career arc, but I certainly don't have a typical career arc. Um, I, I went to OU University of Oklahoma. I was a finance guy. And you know, when I discovered finance, it came more naturally than anything I'd ever done. I'd always gotten decent grades, but finance just clicked. And the moment that I started taking finance classes, I thought, this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, college was a period, I think, of really uh, the other significant things that happened in college. I met my wife. And I really, uh, at kind of a spiritual worldview level, I, I think I had a major like shaping, you know, process where uh, I really took a hard look at, hey, what do I think the point of my life is? What do I want to be doing? Mm. Um, so college was was really deeply formative. So I thought when I graduated, I thought, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to, you know, work in finance. I got married to my wife a week after I graduated. She was uh, doing a bachelor's and master's combined in accounting, and she was, you know, uh, she's amazingly talented. That's a smart family, right? Accounting <laughs> she, and finance. Yeah, she, go. there you go. And and ironically, you know, neither of us ended up using that, which is so funny. But she, uh, so she had another year left in her degree, uh, and we were we were newly married, and so I was trying to figure out, like, hey, what does it look like? What am I going to do uh, right after college? And this opportunity arose to do a you know nonprofit ministry job at the college campus for a year. I thought, oh, this is perfect. Yeah. You know, I'll still, you know, be around campus. My wife's gonna be finishing up her degree. And then both of us will go work, obviously, like in accounting yeah. and finance. And there was uh, there was a whole plan. There was a whole plan. Yeah. You know, in fact, the the summer after we got married, we both had internships. He had a, a internship with Ernst and Young. I had an internship with Chesapeake, and it was like, oh, this is what it's going to look yeah. like. There's just kind of going to be this interlude. Um, and then, you know, I loved it. You know, I, I unexpectedly just loved my entire work week being about investing in other people. Oh, wow. And I don't know that I'd ever done that before. And, and you know, it's probably two things, Chris. It's probably one was uh, you have your own self-doubt of like, you know, it, does it make any difference? Uh, am I able to make any kind of a difference in other people's lives? Um, but then also like there was a self-realization that like, wow, this, this actually brings out parts of me um, that I like better, you know, like it, different jobs bring out different parts of our personality and our mm-hmm. skill sets. And, and there were certainly things that that kind of awakened in me that I, that I really enjoyed. And so one year turned into two, my wife went and she did work for Chesapeake, uh, for a year. And then after that second year, I thought, you know, I want to keep doing this. So one year turned into two, turned into basically 10. I spent my entire twenties you know, in the nonprofit world. So wow. I, I raised my salary. I raised my salary and my first year it was $18,000. I struggled to raise all $18,000. Um, and yet it was a fantastic experience. So the foundation of my entire career was basically this nonprofit work and not having a lot of money, uh, learning a bunch of new skill sets, um, but loving the fact that I was getting to make an impact in people's lives. Um, well, you developed a sales skill set right there. You know, you know that's, it's so funny because if you'd asked me at, at 30, you know, could you be good at sales? I'd be like, I have no sales experience. Yeah, none, none at all. But I had to raise my salary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's and, and even, you know, whether it's ministry or any other type of nonprofit work, what you realize is what you're doing is casting vision about here's how the world is. Here's how it could be. And there's this gap. And here's how we can move towards the world that we all want to live in. And like that's actually a persuasion sales function yeah, yeah. as well. 
Uh, it's also so, the essence of entrepreneurship. It's like recognizing a problem and how and leading a way through it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I got to I got to thirty. I was you know leading this in this ministry context, and my my younger brother, he's uh, about two and a half years younger than me. Uh, he had started like a one person kind of uh, internet marketing company and had done really well, but he wanted to start uh, like a kind of a, a bigger company. He wanted to really go for it. And so he, he approached me. There was this idea uh, of an auction website that the company that we looked at was only in Europe. And he, th- and he said, basically, like, hey, would you be willing to help me do this? And so for me, even when I was in the nonprofit world, I still loved paying attention to the stock market yeah. and, and doing, you know, I still had kind of that itch that, that I wanted to scratch a little bit. So I said, sure, I'd, I'd love to nights and weekends help you with this. I helped him recruit some, some other guys uh, as the kind of starting team. And we started this business. Uh, in October 2009, uh, and like I said, it's totally you know like a part-time thing for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. So over the next 13 months, it goes from founding to it has its first million-dollar revenue day, and the process, I mean, was as crazy as you can imagine. You know, when we started something, you're hoping maybe it'll yeah. it'll, it'll, it'll it'll be something. successful. Yeah, maybe. And for me, even I was just like, hey, it's interesting. So even it just as a side project, I wasn't I wasn't expecting a lot. And instead, we had this this company that just grew like crazy, like a weed. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I tell people, like, I was the oldest person at the company at this point. I was thirty. I was kind of the inmates running the asylum kind of situation. Like, none of us knew what we were doing. We were we were it's honestly we were so naive that we weren't even able to really fully appreciate the level of success the company was having because we just didn't even understand. Yeah, you had no context. Yeah, you, like, do, you just don't I, have a frame of reference. look like a lot of dollars coming in. That's right. Know? It's right. You don't you don't have a frame of reference. And so um, around that same time, my wife and I got pregnant with our first, um, my son Carter. And there there was this point where I'm, I'm kind of probably working 80-hour weeks at this point because I'm trying to run a major function at this startup that's growing like crazy. I'm trying to also lead in the nonprofit world with this organization that's growing really quickly. And I just realized like, you know, I am not going to be able to be the kind of husband and father I want to be if I'm trying to do all of this yeah. in, in my career. So I, I need to make a choice. And after a lot of thought and deliberation, uh, my wife and I felt like the call for me was into the business world. And that was still actually a really difficult transition for us because we had so much community uh, and we were so invested in the work that we've been doing in the nonprofit world. Moved over full time to the for-profit world, uh, worked with my brother for several years. Um, and during that time, we launched several additional businesses that kind of ranged from, uh, you know, colossal failures to um, to fairly successful um, but in the process of doing those things, we continued to learn a lot. And so by the time you got to about 2015, uh, we had just done about as, e- as much e-commerce as anyone that, mm-hmm. you know, the name wasn't Amazon. I mean, it's, it's really random, right? It's this company and a, a few people in the middle of Oklahoma that had just this tremendous amount of e-commerce experience. You know, we'd shipped, I don't even know, 20 million packages, 30 million packages. You know, we had transacted over a billion dollars in revenue at that point. So we had learned a lot, um, but I felt a restlessness of, I would really like to either go back into the nonprofit world or I'd like to start some kind of a for-profit company that just worked a different, that was a different take. Um, you know, when I originally moved into the business world, I, I told my brother when I did it, I'm gonna be here for five years and then I'm going back to the nonprofit world. That That's not actually what ended up happening. What yeah. ended up happening was, when I got to that decision point, 
Um, there were a few guys that I had worked with um, that had approached me and said, hey, would you be interested in doing something uh, with us? It's just kind of a side project. Yeah. And I, I was open to it because I just, you know, really respected and enjoyed those guys and enjoyed working with them. Uh, and really all we knew, Chris, was that we wanted to do something in, uh, we wanted really high quality products. We wanted to sell online. We really felt like we could do well uh, selling on Amazon as our first channel. Um, and and we wanted the company culture to have this kind of thread of generosity. And I think that's about, you know, anything else is revisionist history. People will ask you all the time. And, and you know, there's this, uh, are you familiar with this, this idea of survivorship bias? Oh yeah. Right? So, Survivorship bias is basically just like, you know, history kind of gets written by the winners. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you read those stories, it, it doesn't actually work to go backwards and, and apply those principles because it's not so much those principles that made them successful as it is uh, just that ended up being the story of the person who was successful. But yeah. so I try and avoid that. But, you know, people love to ask the question of like, hey, how did you get the idea? And, you know, what was the light bulb moment, you know, when the Apple hit you in the head and you knew? And, and it just usually isn't like that. So uh, it's a discovery process. It's 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 always a process, mm -hmm. and so we started with just a, a few kind of pillars, and the pillars were the relationships that I had with the other co-founders that we wanted to make excellent product. We wanted to use our e-commerce background. Uh, we wanted to have a, a spirit of generosity, and mm -hmm. that was it. Mm -hmm. Everything else came along the way. Mm -hmm. And honestly, so were it, those? Did you think that those were requirements, or were those sort of core values? I you know I think that they became, they, they were, for me, they were requirements and they, they've they kind of morphed into what our company core values okay, are. Yeah. You know, I haven't said it yet, but obviously like that's the start of Simple Modern. Yeah. And uh, the the process of actually getting to, you know, making stainless steel insulated drinkware uh, was, was still actually a little bit of a winding process. It wasn't the first product that we sold. Uh, it took us a few months to really settle on that. There's There's a list out there that I have that of, we did a big brainstorming session and some of the ideas are just terrible. Like Chris, I, I would just, my life would be terrible. I mean, it was like pet gates and compost bins, yeah, you know, it's like, I mean, I guess maybe yes. we, you know, and, and there, I have nothing against people who make pet gates or compost bins, but like there were some ideas on there that would not have been as promising. So you guys are just shopping on Alibaba. We, we just, we, yeah, we're, we're looking at the Amazon marketplace and we're, yeah. and we're asking questions like, Hey, where could we maybe be successful? Um, and it's interesting, I don't share this story very often, but I'll, I'll share it here. What I was looking at is I was looking at the Amazon kind of marketplace, because that's where we wanted to start, is I was looking for what could we you know, sell that is defensible, that you have like some chance, because you're, you know, once you come up with something, even if you come up with something new, there's going to be a lot of competition from all over the world that's gonna try and come and compete with you. So as I was looking at things, one thing in particular grabbed my attention, there was somebody in the United States who is selling personalized uh, pet tags, mm -hmm. like where you can get your your phone number and the, the dog or cat or whatever uh, the name engraved on it. And I thought, man, that's really interesting because you know anybody can, you know, with an international manufacturer or whatever can, can source these pet tags, but they're adding this layer of value at where they're mm -hmm. engraving it yeah. that makes it really hard to disrupt them. And it took me down this path of like, well, what are the product categories where that's possible, where you're adding value? You're not just putting something on a ship, you know, in China or somewhere and, and bringing it over and saying, you know, this is our product, but where you're really adding value to the process. And uh, so that was one of the many things that started to push me down a particular way of thinking about 
product and eventually how we've thought about drinkware, which is like a totally different conversation. But so that's that's the start of Simple Modern. Started in uh, 2015, sold our first drinkware bottle uh, in March of 2016. So we're, you know, whatever, six, six and a half years in yeah. right now. Um, and at this point, you know, selling uh, probably about 10 million bottles this year. Yeah, so at, at pretty significant scale. But, and different channels uh, than Amazon. We can, we can talk yes, about not those. not just lots, not lots just Amazon. Channels. You can't you can't get to that number without basically selling in all of the yeah. biggest retailers in the world. And and we've been really fortunate. Yeah, it's good. So I, I just want to break this up real quick. So uh, you, your sort of first stage where you're you're in the nonprofit world and you're learning about people. Yeah. Uh, and there's a there's a probably what I want to do is I just want to like break these down and say what was the lesson that sure. you were able to carry into Simple Modern, right? And so like. Uh, nonprofit and then sort of uh, bootstrapped, you know, um, uh, early stage, you know, e-commerce startup, right? Multiple businesses, but in kind of that same ecosystem. What are kind of two, a lesson or a key lesson from each of those that you brought into kind of the simple modern? Yeah. So I, I think from the nonprofit world, here's a few of the things that I took away. Number one, I took away that the most important thing is people. And there's so many people that get into business that think business is about it's about strategy and it's about product and it's about pricing and and to be to be sure those things are a big part of it but ultimately business is about uh, cooperating with organizing recruiting motivating mm -hmm. people yeah and that the best the best entrepreneurs the best businesses are great with people and it is exceptionally hard to build a good business if you um, discount the importance of people. And and I think in the process of being in the nonprofit world, you know, the nonprofit world, I had my first team that I led, everyone had raised their salary, you know? So it's like, they're, they're like even a step beyond the kind of at will employee. It's like, they have like really had to sacrifice to get there. Yeah, they're all in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it takes a tremendous level of commitment, um, you know, and, the entire job was about like how do i cast vision how do i motivate that is separate from money you know yeah. and money using money to get people to do things is like the basest uh way of doing it yeah you know it's true and uh, like when i was in college i was a fraternity president which was another great example it's like you've got to learn how to motivate people when you can't just say do this you know because i said so or you can't use money to get people to do what you want them to do but instead you have to really intrinsically motivate them. Yeah. And so I got these opportunities to really learn how do you do that? You know, and it is, it's casting a compelling vision. Hey, wouldn't it be awesome if this was the future? Mm -hmm. And let's go there together. Here's what it can look like. And here's how we can get there. Mm -hmm. Will you come with me? Yeah. And here's where you fit. Absolutely. Yeah. And here's how, you know, here's how there's an important role for you to play in that. I mean, everybody wants that. Yeah. Everybody wants to be called into a bigger story and everybody wants the story of their life to be one of meaning and purpose. Um, as a leader, when you're able to actually communicate that to people, mm -hmm. here is how you can fit into a significant story. Here's how you can be a part of making a difference. Then uh, people unsurprisingly want to be a part of that. And, and I think that has a lot to do with connection, right? They're connecting sure. with something, they're 
bonded to it. They're like, this is, I'm, I'm connected. I catch the vision. I see where I fit. And they're, they're distinctly connected. It isn't connected via a transaction of a paycheck. That's right. And you know, this is where I'm, I'm sure you'll want to ask about this later, but I'll, I'll give a little bit of a side about values and, and mission. You know, there's this interesting thing right now. And I think in our country, we're really wrestling with, you know, what are the roles of values and what are the roles of diversity within organizations mm-hmm. and how should this look? And I would, you know, I would say that I, I don't have this figured out, but I, I've learned one principle, which is if you try to build a company for everyone, you know, and, and for every customer, you end up building it for no one. You know, this is actually a startup principle that they teach, you know, uh, at Y Combinator and a bunch of others like, that, hey, it's way better to have 10 super fans than 100 people that kind of like your product. And I think the same is true inside of companies. We need to have diverse perspectives and opinions, but also you need to build a monoculture around values mm-hmm. that like diversity and values is actually really profoundly unhelpful because it's so difficult to motivate and excite a group of people when you don't have some kind of a North Star that you're pushing towards. So so that's the way that I communicate it is like you really do have to have an idea of like, what are we about and why should people care? And we are going to recruit around that and we are going to message that to customers. And this is going to drive everything that we do. Mm-hmm. Because when you do that, there will be people that are like, I'm passionate about helping make that. Possible. Make it real. And there'll be other people that are like, that's not for me. And it's like, that's great. That's fine. What I need is a team where everybody is excited and finds a lot of meaning in helping pursue these values and this mission. And sure enough, there'll be customers that are extremely excited about buying from a company that, yeah. that is pursuing those things. But as a leader, you know, values can't be one of those things where you send out a survey monkey and you say, hey, everybody, what should our values be? Yeah. You know, you really, this is, I think, especially as a founder, there is this unique role that a founder plays. And one of the unique facets of, of that is that they are able to speak with authority about what the values and the the direction of the organization is. And conviction, absolutely. Absolutely, and I think this is one of the reasons why founder-led businesses, they just outperform. You know, like lots of studies on this, whether it's public companies, private companies, when there's a founder, there's a clear North Star of like why the company exists. When, When there's not clear direction, it is very easy for the company to become much more transactional. Mm-hmm. This is a company that exists to make money. I'm here to get this paycheck. You trade me money for my time. And, and that's fine, right? But that's not motivating. That's not compelling. It's certainly not on a heart level like what we're looking for as people. And when we get drawn into an organization um, that that is offering you know a bigger, a bigger scope and a bigger vision, it's, it's really compelling. So I, that's one of the things I really took away from being in the nonprofit world. Yeah. That's really good. And I, I think one of the things that's really interesting is uh, you're talking about values and you're talking about mission. Mm-hmm. Values is like a really great way to screen people and talent. And mission is a really great way to screen deals and yeah. opportunities and selling. And I, 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 I totally agree and have seen the same, the same sort of uh, piece where like, some if there is a, a leader that has the conviction that's sort of bringing uh, the values to life and giving people an opportunity to live in them and recruiting people that identify with them uh, the, and they have a clear vision and a mission, that really is kind of a great recipe for at least the first part of success. And then there's sort of the acumen side. Is that mm-hmm. really one of the things you learned 
sort of like in the early stage, you know, it's just the the fundamentals of just running an e-commerce business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I when I went into the business world full time, uh, I, I was extremely raw. You know, like nobody. Yeah. I, I I had. I had done okay in school and I had this finance background, but that was literally like, you know, eight or nine years earlier. And so, although I think at a kind of a leadership level I and strategy level, I might have, have been fine. I was like, just tactically, I just was not strong, you know, for my yeah. age. Um, like a really, you know, simple example of this is I, I spend a lot of time in spreadsheets in that company. I was basically in charge of like kind of all of the economics and, and running, um, you know, this auction website, the kind of the entire, uh, economy of it. And, uh, I had, I'm still like, you know, using the mouse to move around a bunch and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty slow, you know, like my spreadsheets were decent quality, but yeah. I was just really slow. I just didn't have the practice of like the hours in. And so like, it's a simple thing, but it's like, I needed to learn the hotkeys in Excel. Yeah. And now if you watch me in Excel, like I'm really fast at Excel. Yeah, it, but, are you the kind that like, there is no mouse? Yeah, yeah it's like, going. there's no mouse yeah. and it's like, it's all hotkeys and yeah. stuff like that. And, but you know, it's like, I just had to, at one point I had to say, I'm going to get good at this. Mm -hmm. And every time I'm doing something in a spreadsheet, I'm going to, instead of using my mouse, I'm gonna look up the hotkey and I'm gonna use the hotkey and I'm gonna drill it in my head. Yeah. And you know, you do that for a couple hundred hours and all of a sudden you've developed a skill. You have skill. a capability, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's really, you know, to some extent, what you have to do as an entrepreneur is you have to understand like at the beginning, it is gonna be me or maybe me and a couple of other people. And I am going to have to be willing to do all the blocking and tackling. I'm going to have to be willing to wear all the hats. And I am going to have to be willing to commit to learning to do those things with excellence. Mm -hmm. Because before I can hire other people, before anything else can happen. And, and even, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that let's say you're successful. You start something and then you do start hiring people. Who's going to train them? Yeah. Right. Well, it has to be you. And, while and you're doing the other things. That's exactly right. And if you want excellence in the organization, you have to go first mm -hmm. and you have to put in the work. And so, uh, you know, in a, a multitude of ways, whether that's learning hotkeys in Excel or the basics of a financial statement and how that leads to decision making mm -hmm. or, you know, the thing about e-commerce, this is a joke actually among people that are in e-commerce is that to be good at e-commerce, you have to be good at like 50 things. You have to understand, you know, conversion rate optimization and digital marketing and yep. sourcing and fulfillment and inventory legal management. And, yeah, and finances <laughs> and inventory. I mean, like, and, and, and pricing and discounting. Yeah. It's just like amazing how yeah. many. So one of the ways that I'll say it to people is that I feel like it was like getting an MBA on crack. I mean, yeah. I just, I felt bombarded. We've all had that experience where it felt like we were just drinking out of a fire hose. And for sure, the first couple of years for me felt that way, but they were foundational basically for the rest of my career because I was building the skill sets that I would need to be successful and also to hopefully be able to manage people well mm. as, you know, companies I was leading we're growing. Yeah. Okay. So you, you stage one, right, is about values and people. Then stage two in e-commerce is uh, the value of skills and really understanding a market. And you show up with three requirements, right, into simple modern. Yeah. And you show up in a place that happens to be super freaking crowded. Absolutely. <laughs> so absolutely, you're taking these things. What were what were some of the early struggles, right? That you're like, we got these three requirements. They morph into values, and we're in a crowded space. What are the what are the things you guys picked up on early? Okay, so 
there's there's so many different ways I can take this answer, and I'll just give you a couple of the the thought processes that are going on in my mind. Yeah. One of them is even at the very beginning, I'm thinking about how do I create a defensible business? Mm. And this is, you know, countless entrepreneurs have the story of like, I started this thing and I had some success and then I couldn't sustain it. And it was kind of a discouraging experience. And so I was thinking about like, what do moats look like? What does sustainability look like mm. very early on? Um, one of the very first things we did is I noticed like, hey, I don't think anybody's doing like licensed drinkware, like university, NFL licensed drinkware as well as they could. And I started pursuing that because I thought, hey, if we could do that really well, like that feels like something that we could, you know, and turns out that is something that we're, we've, yeah. we've grown into and we, and we do really well. I think we're, I think we do it as well or better than anybody in the world. Um, so that's one thing I was thinking about. I was looking at the industry as a whole and saying, lots of competition, mm -hmm. obviously. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm hyper aware of like, how do I build something that's defensible? Another thing that was going on is we were looking at the industry. The industry was growing really fast. I mean, Yeti was just exploding. Hydroflask is ex exploding. There's a lot of new people entering the market. And we were asking some questions about, hey, where is this going? And there was a little bit of a light bulb or aha moment where we realized these are like shoes. These are like handbags. These are like a watch. They are a functional thing. You know, we, we use it to drink water uh, and to keep water cold or coffee or whatever. But also there's a real fashion element here. Yeah. There is a real expression element. And once we saw that, number one, I started to become a lot more confident about our long-term prospects because Everybody doesn't want the same black water bottle, you know? And um, we started to say like, man, th at this point, Yeti was still, everything they were selling was just stainless steel. Like the the actual product was so exceptional that there was, there was kind of this um, slowness of some of our competitors to really lean into ornamentation and differentiation because they were just being so successful with just the actual product itself. Yeah. So we started to lean into that really heavily early on, differentiation, and uh, that combined with, we, we also kind of looked at the marketplace and what we noticed was a lot of our, of the established competitors were killing it in physical retail, but had not prioritized digital at the level that, mm -hmm. that they could have. And also that some of our competitors uh, had pricing structures that they needed to have for physical retail, but made them less competitive online. And this is kind of like a larger principle that I'll, I, maybe we can come back to it a little bit later. When you look at a market and you see lots of competition or you see a really great competitor, we'll use Yeti in this case. Yeti's yeah. a several billion dollar company. I admire the work they do with their brand. I think they're really well run. When you look at Yeti and the way that they've run their business, it's easy to focus on all the things they do well. And you should, you should be aware. And there are certain demographics that like, we do not have a very good chance of competing against Yeti in these demographics. Like it just wouldn't go well for us. But there's also counter weaknesses that come with the strengths. The stronger that a company is or a competitor is in one particular area, there's a flip side of that coin, which means that they will be weaker in another way, yeah. or they will not focus, they will not compete with you well in another area. So. You know, by like for example, uh, we'll use Yeti as an example because of their pricing structure and because of the brand equity they've built, they're just not going to compete in several areas of the marketplace and at several price points because that's not 
what they want to do. Yeah. And they're not going to compete with for certain demographics as hard because that's not their brand identity. And so when you when you look at a competitive marketplace, it's good to take stock of, hey, what are all the things that these firms that are having success, what are they doing well? But it's also good to say, where where are the gaps? Where yeah. are the white space? Where are the things that they're tr not trying to do well? And sure enough, you'll almost always see, hey, there's room. There's room for someone else that's coming in and running a, uh, a competent business uh, to address some of these areas. So for us, we saw that with e-commerce, both in pricing and e-commerce. What it kind of came together is, is like, hey, we're gonna be digital first. We're going to have a lot of different choices. We're going to have premium quality at really affordable pricing. And that's gonna be our thrust. And as we leaned into that, had almost immediate product market fit. Wow. And you know, the, the process was kind of like, uh, I buy a thousand water bottles, we get them in, we sell through them in, you know, a month. I have to put another order in. It's like, well, man, I gotta go bigger, you know. Okay, I'm buying 5,000 this time. And then, you know, at the last second, I'm like, no, I'm buying 7,000. And then that night, you know, you wake up in a cold sweat like, you what idiot. Yeah, why have you bought 7,000 water? You've only sold a thousand. Like, what are you thinking? The 7,000 water bottles get in, you know, they're gone in a month. It's like, man, I should have bought bigger and like rinse and repeat. They, yeah. There was that process over and oh, over yeah. and over again that all, because we were bootstrapped. This is another thing yeah. that's distinctive about our company is that, um, you know, we're competing with these companies that have literally hundreds of millions yeah, VC in funding. Bags, yeah. And we're bootstrapped with a couple hundred thousand dollars of my money. Mm -hmm. And and I will say this, like, listen, being able to even invest a couple hundred thousand dollars shows a lot of privilege that it I was does, even yeah. able to do that. But we were definitely in the grind of like, hey, we have to be profitable. We have to have every investment and decision make sense because we just don't have the resources to absorb, you know, making uh, bad Critical errors, yeah. That's right. Yeah. But this is actually- No margins. So what's interesting is, uh, and I'll, I'll talk about this principle sometimes, the thing about scarcity is scarcity can be a superpower. You know, usually we think me not having enough of what I want is bad. It's just inherently bad. And I would make the argument that that's actually not always true. You know, even at like a biological level, like fasting is good for our body. Our body not always having food is good for our body. It helps our body to function better. In in a business context, scarcity, what it does is it creates focus. It helps to prevent us becoming lazy uh, or taking unnecessary risks in our decision-making because we have more finite resources that we have to allocate. Mm. And so, you know, you'll hear these stories about companies that raise hundreds of millions or billions of dollars and somehow go bankrupt. And you're like, how, how is that possible, mm -hmm. right? That doesn't even seem possible. And the, the reason is when you just feel like you have unlimited funds, you can lose the discipline of decision-making and investing and being a good steward. But when you have finite resources, and I'm sure, you know, the people listening to this podcast, based on what you've told me is is kind of the, the listener, they're dealing with this every day. Yeah. You know, that you feel that scarcity, right? You feel the sense of like, man, you know, do I do I buy the inventory I need or like what's payroll look like next week or whatever? And what it does is, although it's stressful, it really helps create a very clear hierarchy in your head of what are the best investments and where does the money need to go um, and helps you to become a better operator. I mean, one of the things that's uh, really awesome about talking about scarcity is talking about entering a market. Mm -hmm. There are, because um, I'd really like to understand how you, the data and the discovery and the insights of what gave you sort of like that, because that's a strategy, it's a strategic choice, right? Yeah. Everything you just said. 
um, and th- to get to product market fit. <clears throat> One of the things I, I think is really interesting to talk about is when someone's thinking about competition, they typically go first from their experience and what they understand, mm-hmm. where they shop, what they're, what, where they, you know, where they buy, where their friends buy and like what they like and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, they're in geographies, mm-hmm. they're a certain demographic themselves. Right. And so it's sort of like people will opt out of great opportunities or interesting opportunities that may be great ideas because they're, it, it's like, oh, there's not enough space for me. Yeah. And at the same time, it's like in e-commerce, you're like, man, we have, let's just say you're going to focus on just the US, mm-hmm. right? Not not even uh, global. And you're like, man, I I see these ads for all these other people. And there's this, there's this myopic sort of closed-minded thing that happens. And that's the scarcity where it creates a bit of fear saying, mm-hmm. I don't know if I can step in that direction because my experience is telling me uh, that it might not be good or people's experience uh, surrounding me are are telling me it might not be a great idea. So what what did you guys do to get some of the discovery and the data and the insights to codify that strategy? Absolutely. So, you know, the thing that I think I have, if I, if I could deconstruct the process that goes on in my head, I would say there's a couple of just truisms about the way that I see the world that have been exceptionally helpful and anybody can do this. The first is, I'm just curious. I'm curious and I really enjoy learning and that has propelled me to try to become better and better and better at designing experiments mm-hmm. that help me to learn more. And as I've done more and more experiments, I've, I've gotten better and better at how do you experiment inexpensively. So the way the process kind of basically works is I just am constantly wanting to understand more about how things work and why they work that way. And I'm constantly finding little ways to test these theories I have and say, how do I test that and learn that for the, you know, the how do I pay the least tuition necessary mm-hmm. to get to that next level of understanding? Yeah. And you know, great entrepreneurs, business in general, like when you approach it as if I learn enough about this market and the customer, there's going to be a way for me to provide a living, you know, there's going to be a, a financial possibility yeah. in, in any industry. You know, like we could look at this table and be like, I don't know anything about the table industry. I'm sure the table industry is quite competitive, but I'm also sure that if I dedicated myself to learning everything I could about the table industry, I would find that there are some opportunities there. There are some ways that my skill set mapped to making great tables for people and, and serving a particular type of the market. So I think there is this confidence that, hey, no matter the business vertical, if you take the attitude of a learner and this attitude of curiosity, and you're constantly trying to understand what people want, what they need, what are the pain points they're experiencing, that inevitably you get that idea, that insight of like, oh, wow, there's an opportunity here. And that's what's kind of happened, not just through my career, but especially with Simple Modern, is that I feel like, I mean, today I will learn more about our customer. And it no longer, you know, leads to these massive pivots in perspective. Mm-hmm. But I would say I have micro tweaks, pivots yeah. in my perspective every single day. Yeah. And I would say if you're not having micro pivots, if you don't feel like you ended the day learn- understanding more about your customer or your business than you did yesterday, then that's that's a red flag, yeah. right? And if you go a few weeks like that, that's really a red flag because there's always more that we can learn and we can understand about people. And you know what business really is, Chris, is it's serving people, mm-hmm. right? We don't we don't use that terminology because of the money involved, but it's like my job is to serve our customers 
And there's no way I can serve our customers unless I'm constantly learning more about the products that we make and how to, you know, their needs and how to best serve them. And when I take that mentality, like it's easy to release products that people want to buy because I'm, I'm listening to their feedback and, and you know, the, the entire Simple Modern team is, and then we're, we're building around that. So this is, I think, the entrepreneurial process at the most basic level is it starts with, it starts with curiosity, it starts with learning, it starts with how do I constantly test and gather information and then use what I've learned to, to test some more and learn some more. That's good. So are you using tools like Google Insights, Answer the Public, you know, all the search volume, you know, uh, every, just try every data source I can get my hands on. That's awesome. That's my attitude. What are I some mean, of your favorites? So, well, like one of the things at the very beginning when we were like, we're going to sell on Amazon is we realized, well, well we, we, the question we asked was, what are people buying? You know, we're going to go where people are already trying to buy things. That's a lot easier than trying to create a market is what are people already buying? And so how do you figure that out? And we had this, you know, I think it was actually my brother. We had this great insight that the way you find out what people are buying the most, there's some bestseller lists that can be helpful, but also was the review system. We realized that, you know, reviews happen X percent of the time. We didn't know yeah, at this point. You didn't know what percent. What but. percent, but we knew like, hey, there's some kind of a percent. And so if we're just looking at review quantity, and then we, we also built this little scraper where we were looking at um, review density, like, you know, in recent weeks, like how quickly are they coming in? We could get an idea for velocity. We realized, oh, wow. So you you had a, you had a a scraper that was going through each uh, page right. page we, of Amazon. We, we started just saying like grabbing. Hey, it's all right there. All the information mm -hmm. is right there. Like let's go look at it. You know, and not only could we find what products we're selling, we would learn things about color preferences. And we're like, oh yep. wow, there's a lot to learn here. And you know, you mentioned it, but this is this is the paradigm shift of the internet. Is that now? Just about any piece of information you could ever want to know is out there somewhere. And for you can sure. probably get it for free. So to some extent, it's about desire. Well, and, I, and that curiosity. So yeah, it's absolutely. baked in. So like, I, you know, OU had a, a recruiting event last spring that they, or, or maybe it was last fall, that they had me come and speak to. It was their big kind of recruiting for prospective student services. And I'm trying to think through like, hey, what do I want to say? Because there's a lot of things about the university model that have been disrupted and, you know, costs have been going up and so like my job is to get up there and talk about hey here's why going to use a good idea and as i was thinking about it what i realized uh, and what i came to was you know if you think about the university model a hundred years ago it was we're the place that has the information and if you want the information you need to pay us the money and you need to come and listen to the experts and get it from them well that's not the case anymore right mm -hmm. i mean even people listening to this podcast like listen you can listen to podcasts of far smarter people than me you know for free that have been more successful than me like there's there's just like an abundance of information where we can get from the the very best experts in the world on any subject we can get information for free. 100 percent. so okay so what's the point of universities why is a university worth you know fifty thousand dollars? And what I what I shared with the families that were there was, it's a great investment if your time in college makes you love learning and cultivates a love of learning mm -hmm. because that's the skill in a world that's awash with information where it's all right there. It's about developing the love and the hunger for learning and the discipline of becoming a self feeder. Like that's actually the superpower. Once you develop that. There's really no stopping you. And it's one of the things that's fantastic about the world that we live in is that, you know, it used to be 50, 75, 100 years ago, it was a, a little bit of a geographic uh, lottery. Like if you're born in, you know, if you're born in California, you win. 
If you're born in Bangladesh, you lose, you know, and that's it. And now we're living in this world where it's like, hey, if you have an internet connection, and that's pretty much everybody at this point, you're in the game. And now it's about, hey, do you love learning? Are you willing to push yourself? Do you have a growth mindset? And if you do have those things, then there's a lot you're capable of. That's true. And I think another thing that's great about school is this idea of um, communities you're connected to and the Absolutely. people resources available to you. Right? Absolutely. And the networks available to you. I mean, uh, one of the guys that mentored me was a you know HBS uh, grad and his network went from sort of 10 to 100, yeah. right? Order just of magnitude, being, just, yeah. being, just being a part of that uh, ecosystem. So I, I think it's really powerful. Well, you know, being digital first, right? So you guys, sure. I, 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 it's clear, right? Like you're, you guys are in spreadsheet land. You're probably in other sort of, uh, you know, big query kind of like um, we're scraping stuff, you know, we're using Screaming Frog or whatever scraper that you built to try and sort of aggregate all this data. And you guys are getting insights and you're making certain choices and you land on drinkware. But the thing that I think is is really powerful is you you get this kind of initial sort of um, boost of sales that you were just talking about a couple minutes ago. But how did you get from sort of that uh, the initial product market fit to kind of moving into scale? What are some of the things that started to happen yeah. in the business? What are, what are, what are some of the things that maybe maybe even value centric that started to show up? Sure. Well, uh, so the the biggest thing that happened for us, I mean, we we got a massive tailwind from licensing. So I I'd had this uh, insight or perspective that I'd shared earlier of like, man, I, I think we could do licensed insulated drinkware better than anyone. And I had this idea of like, what if you did something around universities? You know, like I, I still live in Norman, I'm in a college town. I'm like, I think that there could be a good market here. You could have filled the Grand Canyon with everything I did not know about licensing at the time. I mean, it was literally like I get on Google. It is a complex world. I'm like, I know nothing. I have no contacts. I'm on Google and I'm just like, how do you get licensed? You know, and I start the process of learning. And pretty much what I learned, uh, I'll I'll share the, the story. I pretty much learned. You don't get licensed. That's the answer. The answer is it's a, you know, it's an oligopoly basically. And like you don't there you don't get in and and unless you have a brand new product or a brand new market, like they generally don't license you. But I was, you know, naive and and probably a little bit stupid. And to some extent, you know, maybe entrepreneurship requires, you know, like one of the quotes, uh, like in- You know, a test or two. Yeah, exactly. Like in in Star Wars where he says never, you know, Han Solo says, never tell me the odds. It's like, that's kind of has to be at least a little bit. If you spend too much time as an entrepreneur thinking about all the ways it won't go well, then you'll never do it. And if I'd known what the percentage chances were that this was going to be successful, I probably wouldn't have gone after it. And fortunately, I didn't. So I, I literally, we worked with this manufacturer um, that was making our other bottles to make some samples um, for OU. That was it. It was like, you know, seven tumblers. And I remember getting them in the mail and thinking, we've got something here. And the, the process to getting licensed, the first thing you had to do was get what was called a local license. If you lived within a certain number of miles of a university campus, you could get a local license. And I'm like, hey, I'm an OU alum. I teach there. Yeah. Surely this will be easy. Wrong. You know, even getting the local license was not easy. They wouldn't call me back. It, the, the way that I'll describe the licensing community is it's almost like there's this castle that you want to get in and the drawbridge is up and they're shooting flaming arrows at you. And yeah. there's like alligators in the moat. Yeah. It's like nobody wants to talk to you because there's all these people that have this idea of, oh, it'd be cool if I, you know, slapped an OU on it, people would buy it. And, you know, there's a hundred of those for every, you know, five serious people. So anyway, uh, I finally get a meeting with, uh, I'll share this story because it's one of the funnier ones. I finally get a meeting with the licensing director uh, at OU, 
uh, a woman named Candace who was a, you know, became a huge advocate for us in time. But I, I walk in there and I'm like, man, how do I like create a sense of we're going places? And so um, we had a website, a Shopify website. And if you've, if you've ever had a Shopify website, when you make a sale, it gives this like push notification. It's like cha-ching, cha-ching. Yeah. So I turned marketing up to like a 10 and then I turned the, the, you know, the volume on my phone on before I go in this meeting. And so as I'm giving this presentation, my, my push notifications are going off like cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And after like seven, I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. That's just our website, you know, and I turn it off. But it's like, I'm doing That's every, brilliant. I'm pulling out all the stops of like, how do I make it look like we're going somewhere? I'm able to convince her to give us a local license. And then after I got this local license, I, you know, again, I don't have any idea how stupid what I'm doing is. I call a friend and I'm like, how do I get this in front of Walmart or Sam's Club? And they're like, well, okay, let me make a connection. So they connect me to one of the agencies that represents uh, brands to, to those organizations. Somehow they get a, a meeting with a buyer at Sam's Club who had, it just so happened, was literally looking for exactly what we were doing. Uh, and in the initial meeting, uh, this buyer's like, I'd like to buy, you know, like $7 million worth. And I'm like, that is awesome. That's fantastic. I can't sell any of it to you. I actually don't have any, I don't actually have any of these licenses, but I'm going to go get them. And so armed with this, like, buyer intent of a lot of money, I was able to go through the process of somehow convincing all these universities to jump on board. And that became, you know, uh, in the licensing world, that became a domino that led to, you know, the NFL and Disney and a bunch of other things. But the number one thing that that did was it gave me at least a little bit of visibility of like, okay, I know that I have a decent amount of cash coming from this program next year. And I was able to accelerate the hiring process a little bit. And we went from kind of four people to 10 people. And not only was I able to hire people, but I was able to hire people that I thought could be executives. Mm -hmm. Like I was able to hire people and say, hey, you're going to be doing the blocking and tackling. You're going to yeah. be, you know, in the muck with us. But someday I think you can, you know, lead and, and really, uh, be leading a, a larger company. And so I was able to kind of recruit over my head. You know, the story behind the people that we hired uh, when I first decided that we were going to do Simple Modern, my wife and I had a date night and I, I, I told her, I really want to do this. And so she said, that's great. I support you. Um, let's make sure that we, you know, hire the very best people. And we literally just brainstormed, like, who would be the 15 people, the first 15 people we could hire? That, that if we could hire them, we would. And we literally made a list. And so when we started to get the traction and we got this commitment from Sam's Club, I just literally started calling down the list of like, hey, I've got an opportunity and I'd like to talk to you about it. And so that helped propel us because we were able to build it. Now, to go all the way back to a principle we talked about before, there's still a lot of sales involved in convincing very talented people to join your team. So true. Every single person that joined our team took a pay cut. I couldn't offer their market value, you know. Eventually they became co-owners and there was equity, but I mean like what's that equity worth when you're you're tiny, you know, yeah. it's not it's not really worth anything yet. And so mostly it was giving vision for hey, let's build something different together. Yeah. And and I would love to do this with you and here's what we're going to be about and I think we have always recruited with our values as our lead foot and this vision of building something different. Um, and that fortunately resonated with that group. And so we were able to to go from four of us. Uh, we literally didn't have an office. We literally would meet in like the upstairs uh, room of my house. 
um, to or Panera Bread. And then we finally, we had an office and we had 10 people. I was like, okay, yes. we've got a legitimate company. We have a foothold. We, yeah, we've got, we've got something to work off of. So it, it was kind of a big break. But you know, if we hadn't gotten that break, I think we could have, it would have looked different. Yeah. But we would have figured it out, you know, um, but, but it was, it's a fun part of our story. You know, it's a big deal. Like uh, there's, there's typically some sort of anchor that you get uh, initial traction on, like, you know, uh, you know, Microsoft, it's that first IBM mm -hmm. deal, right? For you guys at Sam's club, right? There's this, like, I got a contract and I'm not a hundred percent sure how to do that. I'm not, you get an order like that. It's kind of like, man, this, this could sort of make us or break us. And then one of the things that I think is really interesting is, uh, you know, this idea of, uh, selling like the selling that you talked about to recruit these people, mm -hmm. there was a placeholder between your, I've got a little bit of initial traction and you're, I'm selling on values and I have to convince them there's a space between, uh, the money that motivates them and something that was a carrot that was hanging out. That was like, I want to do this because, and what, what that sort of brings people together. And that's some initial traction for growth right there. What, what was sort of the secret sauce or the, the thing that you started to kind of catch on when you, when you realized what you learned early was that people matter yeah. and you got this sort of nexus of people and initial traction with the business. Yeah. How did, how did that start to sort of foster at scale growth? So I, I think that to, and I think I'm answering your question. Like the, the what I'd start with is what's quality of life? Like what, what everybody's after is quality of life. That's good. Right? Everybody's after that. And I think the way that this plays out is that, um, you know, we think, hey, if I had more money, I could I could convert that into quality of life. And, and to be sure, you know, you can do that. What I've learned, and this is one of the secrets of like when you, you become more wealthy is like actually the conversion rate is not guaranteed and it's not so good for a lot of people. Like it's not so easy to convert, you know, more wealth into higher quality of life. And then you say, well, what are all the things that drive quality of life? Because like money in and of itself doesn't drive quality of life. You think money will drive quality of life because money can help you get to the things that do. It's like, well, the things that drive quality of life are that I feel like my life matters and it's a part of something that matters. Uh, that I have relationships that are meaningful, that I feel like I have real connection with other people. You know, I have coworkers that I know. I have coworkers that I enjoy, that they that I feel connected with, not transactional with. You know, that I have in my personal life, my relationships are fostered and they are thriving. You know, that can be my spouse, that can be, you know, my my immediate family or my my kids, that can be my friendships. Um We've all had experiences where we were working so much where those things suffered and we felt our quality of life decline. Um, that can be learning that I'm in an environment where I feel challenged and I feel like I'm, I'm growing and I'm, I'm developing new skills. There's this whole list of them. It's, and this is not, you know, these are not my words. Like there's lots of research on this that's, that's shown what these things are. Yeah. And I think what you can do as a leader is you can be really strategic about, hey, what are the ways that I can build an environment where people get really high quality of life and that paying people well, certainly that that is a part of it. But a lot of times like, it's just a piece. It, it's just a piece. And it's not the biggest piece. Mm -hmm. You know, like the the research will say this all the time. Like people don't leave jobs. They leave bosses. You know, people don't leave jobs usually because of money. Money provides an excuse to do something that they already want to do. 
but very rarely do people and and the type of people that that leave jobs for money a lot of times it's because there's a kind of a different value set and that's and that's fine but we've tried to really build a team uh, around a value set of hey relationships really matter generosity and the impact that we're able to have by being generous in the lives of other people that really matters the ability to learn and to grow and it it really matters the ability to do work that's our best that's Mm. excellent you know that really matters so if you went down kind of our value list it's like excellence generosity growth mindset humility collaboration you can take all of those and say those actually all point to a quality of life factor that Mm -hmm. matters and so we recruit around them. Like some people, that's not going to necessarily feel like the most compelling set. Although I don't think people are that different. I think most people are like, yeah, I want the people I work with, it, you know, everything being equal, I'm going to have higher quality of life if I feel connected with them. Yeah, so you know? true. Like everything being equal, I want to be able to say what I spent my week doing made the world better in some way. And and I can I can see that. I can draw a straight line from how I invested my hours and like this making a positive impact in the life of other people. So the, the years in the nonprofit world where I just, I just did not have finances as a lever were fantastic because I was really able to see for me and for other people like, hey, what are all those other things that really drive quality of life and really build a company around focusing on those? And it turns out that that's really compelling. Um, so at this point, you know, we, we hire very atypically. It's um, almost exclusively off of internal referrals. Like we ask, we, we want people that someone in the company has some kind of a reference on. And we, we lead with values. Like this is what we're about. And the people that apply at this point, not only do we usually have an internal reference, but they're people who are like, I'm coming for the values. Wow. That's why I'm here. Yeah. You know? And so it, we, it's, it's turned into this culture where, you know, at the end of the day, we all need to pay, make car payments and like we pay the bills and stuff like that. But the money piece of it isn't what's compelling about the company. And uh, it's it's all the other things. And you can even make decisions to invest money in ways that accentuate your values. Like a good example for us is per, fairly early on, I was like, we're going to buy all the meals for the company. Like if you, you know, when we're at the office, the company's buying lunch and you know, even with some of my other owners, it was kind of like, hey, is this a, is this the best investment? And I was pretty adamant of yes, because what this does is this really will foster relationships and connectedness. And now if you ask people at our company, like, hey, what's the best part of your week? What, what do you love about the culture? They'll always talk about the meals because it is normative at our company that when it gets to be 12 and the food is there, like everybody goes, there's a, there's a big area, you know, and they go and they sit and they talk and there's real connection. People don't go off campus for lunch. You know, it's, I mean, you can, it's not like you have to stay, but it just, it's become a highlight of people's days. And it's like, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want a part of their day where it's like, oh, hey, I felt like I really connected with somebody over lunch today. Yeah. And so- That's meaningful. Yeah, exactly. And and it's, you know, it's funny is I can provide a lot more quality of life by buying $600 in Chick-fil-A than I can by giving $6,000 of raises. Yes. And so this is another thing as an entrepreneur that I think you can, a skill you can develop is there's a lot of different ways to invest resources and they provide different returns. And some of becoming a skilled entrepreneur is, is being able to look at non- um, 
looking at the returns of things and understanding the quantitative and non-quantitative impacts and being able to like evaluate, you know, evaluate investments. That's really what stewardship is, yeah. is being able to make wise decisions there. Um, and, and this is where kind of the, the leadership side of leading and the skills, you know, kind of the business skill side of leading, they kind of come together and there's this kind of mixture that, that, I think powers the most effective companies. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's interesting as well is just that that sort of pillar of generosity. You know, buying lunch for everybody that that's that's generosity. But I I wonder if uh, some of the generosity that you're talking about is alternative investments. Sure. Right. The, the generosity is like, hey, I can map generosity to just investments in people. Mm -hmm. What are some of the What are some of the other sort of um, things that you're saying are normative for you? Uh, and for for Simple Modern, what are some other sort of generous things that you're like, I am so proud we're able to do this? Yeah, so some some other examples of trade-offs. Um, like on Tuesday mornings, we will have a all-hands meeting where I myself or one of the other leaders in the company will just speak about company values or something that's more developmental. Um, Jeremy Kubicek from Giant, has come in and done several leadership development times. We'll do, we'll break out into small groups to um, discuss kind of a leadership principle or how, you know, we're how we're trying to grow in a particular area. And so it's like, well, okay, that's, you know, whatever, an hour out of the work week or an hour and a half out of the work week for everybody. And we do it every single week. But what we're really doing is we're investing in them. Another good example is, you know, what are your expectations around around work hours and like th this is one of those things and i, I want to be really clear about this like the way that we do it at simple modern is not the right way it's a way mm -hmm. like i don't even know if i don't think there is a right way yeah there's wise and there's foolish there's not and, right and, and there's trade-offs you know like i think what i really push people to do is you know and i i push people in our organization to make their own decisions i don't want to make decisions for them but i push them to have well thought through thought processes about the trade-offs of why they're doing it so like another example is how many hours is normative for people to work in your in your company? Like this is an area where like some companies it's like, hey, it's 35, 38, some companies it's 60, you know, it can 70, it can really, the mileage can really vary. And so uh, an example of how you think about generosity is the more you ask, the more that you're willing to hire to reduce workload on your team, that's a form of generosity. Right. It's like if you only have to work 40 hours, if your expectation is 40 hours instead of 48 or 45 instead of 55. Right. Because the company is willing to hire another person and have less profitability to have a more distributed workload. Like that's a form of generosity. Mm -hmm. And so I, I try to think about it holistically like that, that like there are a lot of different ways that we can invest resources to try and make the experience of the people that work at the company better. So when we think about generosity, Chris, um, the way that we describe it is it's holistic. It's it's everything you have, you have open hands with, and you say, you know, I wanna use the things that I have for the benefit of um, everybody, not just one particular group, but everybody. So um, I want our team to experience generosity. And, you know, that's the free lunches, that's being poured into, that's an environment where, you know, their development and then, you know, their growth as a leader is important and, you know, a whole bunch, of, a whole host of other things, right? But I want to be generous with our customers. Like, how do we charge the most affordable prices we can? That's a mm -hmm. form of generosity. Yeah. We could charge a heck of a lot more for our stuff than we do. One of the reasons we've grown so fast is because people are a little bit like, okay, how in the world are you selling this at half the price of somebody else? This is like this is as good or better like what are you doing 
it's like, well, that's a form of generosity, and it's a form that a lot of people have responded to. They're like, yeah. okay, yeah, I want to, I want to buy from you. You can be generous with your community. You know, like one of our our pillars is we give ten percent of profits away um, within the company. There's a lot of giving that happens, you know, from the owners and outside of the company, but inside of the company, we give ten percent away. Uh, we have quite a few nonprofit partners, both locally, and then we also we have a pool of money that's um, equally distributed among all the employees and given away. So it's like, okay, that's generosity with you know your community. We we have a lot of partners. We have manufacturing partners. We have uh, partners that help us to sell into mass retail. We have uh, partners that help us with fulfillment. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of people involved yeah. in running our organization that don't have Simple Modern on their W two. And there are opportunities all the time to be generous with them. You know, we had a situation with our primary manufacturer where a valve in one of our straw lids, um, they, something got changed and it made it where you couldn't drink well out of it, which is okay. kind of a problem if yeah. it's a straw lid, right? You know, it's like uh, my water bottle is not as helpful if I can't drink it. And there were a lot of different ways that we could have approached that situation. There was certainly a spectrum. And what we really tried to do was find a relational and partnership-oriented mentality. And listen, it required generosity. Mm -hmm. It certainly cost us money, and it certainly cost the organization a lot of time, but it was another example of how our relationship with that manufacturer and you know the partnership is actually stronger as a result of demonstrating generosity. So you know the, the way that I sum it up for people is like, hey, you know, generosity is not as simple as are you writing checks yeah. you know, to charities? Now, it should include that. But if that's if you take a narrow view of generosity, like that's not really what we're aiming for here. We're it's a big deal about how you're doing it. Yeah, exactly, and and how comprehensive the view. So like even this, I filed this under generosity, right? Like it's the middle of the day. There's things I could be doing. Why am I Why am I here talking on this podcast? Yeah. It's like well, because I have, I can give away some of the things that I've learned and some of these perspectives. And hopefully, there's people listening to this where it's like, oh, that was helpful for me, and that yeah, helps me for sure to be more effective. Well, okay, that's a form of generosity. It's why I do the adjunct teaching at OU because it's like it's it's not the paycheck. Uh, it's <laughs> uh, it's uh, not um, not a lucrative profession to be an adjunct professor, but like it's that I love being able to give away uh, the the experiences and the information that I've learned. And so I'm I'm constantly asking in all of the different kind of areas of my life and areas of the business, like what does it look like? Not surprisingly, when we have that kind of mentality. Uh, people tend to want to reciprocate that. Mm -hmm. When people experience generosity from you, they're they're like, hey, how can I, you know, how can I um, help you? How can I? And so it, it's kind of a virtuous cycle. You know, one of the things that, I, I, a theme that I've picked up on with you is that um, uh, continuous improvement is a big part of your life. Sure. So I'm gonna ask you, I wanna ask you two questions. Okay. Uh, the first one is about being an entrepreneur and the second one is about being a leader. Sure. Uh, and the first question really is about what is, you know, cause you've overcome a lot. You've learned a lot, the continuous improvement, these themes, the pillars that it seems like, um, there's so much that you've conquered. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I know that sounds pretty weird. And you're like, please conquered, you know, <laughs> right. but, but this idea of continuous improvement, I think it'd be really helpful to say as an entrepreneur, what is something you're currently working on that you're not, you're like, you know what? I don't have this yet, mm. but I want to improve here. And yeah. how are you thinking about doing that? Cause I think there's a lot of people as entrepreneurs that they're facing an issue and they haven't conquered it yet. And there's learning lessons, but then there's also like, you know what, Mike, 
has conquered a lot of stuff, but he's still trying to improve. He's still trying to figure something out. What is something that, how are you approaching an improvement area, both as a entrepreneur and then I can ask you as a leader? Well, I, I think there's, there's a ton of areas because the reality is I can get better in literally every single area of my life. And so uh, there's not an area where I'm like, I'm good, I'm done, you know? And, and I think that that's health. Health is saying like, we're never there on any area um, not in a discouraging way, but just saying like, hey, there's always room. Um, you know, one area that's really obvious to me is like managing my own emotions mm. is so much of the game. You know, like you think it's about, you think business is about strategy. It's less about that than people. You think it's about managing people. It turns out it's less about that than managing yourself. You know, that starts with, do I have the ability to manage uh, my own emotions and my own thought processes. Um, so much of being successful uh, ha comes from compounding. It comes from, you know, like you're saying, making little improvements over time, staying the course, mm. people wanting to work with you. And so much of that comes from um, steadiness. Like, are you a are you a volatile person? Are you an angry person? Are you, you know, are you putting too much stress on yourself? And, or can you manage the internal tempests and in a way that not only with making decisions on your business or how you treat the people that you work with or how you treat your family uh, or how you're treating yourself physically, that it is sustainable mm. for an extended period of time. Uh, you know, I, I know a lot of business leaders that are thinking about the exit. Like, what does the exit look like? How close am I to the exit? How do I get there? And the the sense I get from a lot of them is like, I'm really tired and I just, I'm just really looking for the opportunity to tag out. And it's always been hard for me to relate because I'm like, man, I feel great. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I could go for 25 more years. And I think most of it is because I my day-to-day -day experience is a positive one. I'm not carrying massive amounts of stress. I, I enjoy what I'm doing. I'm enjoying learning. I feel like I'm, I'm growing. And so sustainability it really comes from managing myself so like listen there are times when i want to get angry there have been some situations in the last few months where you know like a partner has not treated us fairly or you know uh, a situation hasn't been handled well or just stuff like a good example this is a funny story uh we we've been trying to get better at managing our inventory and I woke up one morning and we had oversold a unit by a couple hundred units. So a bunch of people thought they bought their kids this princess backpack and they're not gonna have their princess backpack. And that's frustrating to me because what our customers are experiencing. So I'm, I'm dealing with this on my phone. I'm kind of texting people like, how do we you know, kind of manage the situation? And as I'm doing that, uh, we have a whole team who does customization. Uh, so we, you know, just like this, yeah, yeah. and, uh, my wife is the PTA president at Roosevelt and in, uh, Norman, Oklahoma. And so, uh, she had bought, uh, like, I, I think a hundred water bottles that are customized to sell at this, you know, back to school night. So as I'm like on the phone and I'm dealing with this issue with our inventory, um, my wife realizes that one of the boxes from her orders on the front porch, she brings it in, she opens it up and it looked like trash i mean it was amazing it was if you've ever seen the movie uh ace ventura it was like and the thing with the ups you know where he's a ups delivery guy and he's just destroying this package um, intentionally like that had to be what the delivery yeah. process looked like and i'm looking at this i'm like how is this even possible and you know you just feel it you feel the cortisol you feel like yep. the stress levels rising and it's like in that moment it's like you got to manage yourself 
because what you want to do is you want to fire off an email to somebody, you want to get on the phone and you want to raise your voice internally, you know, you feel all this tension and it's like the discipline of how do I manage this positively? Mm-hmm. Turned out that UPS had damaged our box and they'd just taken it and dumped everything into another box. And it's like, I don't know why UPS did that. And even now it's like, I could be really frustrated about that, but it's a discipline to not be. It's like, no, you know, UPS is a partner of ours. You know, I'm sure that most people that work there would not have wanted that to happen. We need to work through it. We need to deal with it. Business is about solving problems. So like the problems don't go away, no matter how successful the company is. I mean, you might get a little bit better problem set when your company is successful, but the problems are always there. How do you respond to those problems? So that, that would be, you know, one example for me, but like I said, you could you could fairly point out any area of my life and I'd probably say, man, I've got work to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'll, let me add one, one point to that. Here is how you get better tactically is that you, you get a lot of input. You get a lot of feedback. Mm-hmm. And so to get a lot of feedback, you have to want feedback and you have to seek it and you have to be willing to receive it from more than a few sources. Yeah. So, you know, are you the type of person that is asking other people for feedback? Are you the type of person when people offer feedback that it's received, you know, with humility and validated or invalidated? And this is how a lot of leaders stop growing is that it starts to be like, well, I'm, I kind of have my perspective. And even if I say I'm open to feedback, when people bring me feedback, I've got a list of reasons why they're wrong or, you know, why they, they misunderstood me. And so people stop offering you feedback and then the growth slows down. Yeah. So, you know, for me, it's like anybody can offer me feedback. My, my son can offer me, my, he's, he's 10 years old, but sometimes he can offer me feedback that I need to hear, yeah. you know? It, just the fact that he's 10 and he's my son doesn't mean that his point of view is invalid. Sometimes I lose my temper and I should apologize, you yeah. know? And it doesn't matter who it's coming from. And I think, so creating um, an egalitarian perspective toward, you know, people giving you feedback, it's valid no matter where it comes from. And it's helpful mm-hmm. if you'll view it that way. Yeah, I think that is uh, is key. And the thing that, uh, what you just called out was the difference between sort of a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Sure. And it's that right there is like, if you can't take feedback, mm-hmm. are you listening to customer feedback? Mm-hmm. You know, are you listening to personal feedback? Are you, can you do those things? And if you're not listening to them, you've made a choice. Mm-hmm. And you, it's likely a choice to not grow. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's other roadblocks that people, you know, entrepreneurs and operators go through. What are what are some of the roadblocks that maybe you have either given feedback uh, to others about or that you recognize in yourself that are sort of growth roadblocks? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, there's there's so many. I'm like put, parsing through <laughs> in my head. Like, man, where, where like, there's a filing cabinet somewhere with uh, all of these. Know, like, I haven't been in my gosh, head. Uh, roadblocks to growth. Uh, I mean, you know, roadblocks to growth are selfishness. Um, they are fixed mindset. Um, I, man, this is such a good question. You guys are gonna have to cut a minute. Uh, let me. I'll uh, have to cut a minute out oh, while I gather my thoughts because I'm like, I mean, it's so reality. it's so good. So would you would would you rather like hear about tactical things? No, or like, like mindset things. Mindset what are some of the mindset things? things that slow people down? Yeah. Like, that are roadblocks to to them getting to the next yeah, step. Absolutely. So I, I think that some of the different roadblocks I call out. One is it's very easy to see the world as it is today mm. and to just project that out into the future. And growth always requires you to have a vision of the future that's materially different than today and creating a plan of how you get there. Mm-hmm. You know, pessimism sounds smart, 
optimism is usually um, what happens is is like uh, if you if you're an investor like it's there have been so many points over the last 70 years where it would sound super smart to be pessimistic and say you shouldn't invest in stocks but the reality is investing in stocks has been a good decision pretty For much a really all long time and I think if you take that perspective in general that um, it is good to have a healthy dose of um, questioning things and having rigor, but you do have to approach things with some level of optimism or I don't know how you produce growth mm -hmm. because growth is fundamentally a different future than today. And you can always find reasons why that growth can't happen or won't happen. Yeah. So that's, that's probably the first is that you have to be able to, to envision it and you have to be able to adopt the, the, the mindset that it's achievable and communicate to other people, Hey, this is, this is achievable. I think another thing is, listen, uh, my job has changed a ton over six years. You know, early on, I'm like literally the one clicking the mouse. And and now, like, uh, my job is very different. I'm a spokesperson. I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot more speaking. I'm still involved in the strategy. And occasionally, I'll do something tactical in the business, but there's a lot less tactical. You have to continue to grow as a leader the way that your business is growing. So a couple ways this shows up with me. Um, I cannot expect my business to continue to grow and succeed at a faster rate than my character is growing or that my ability as a leader is growing because I will become the bottleneck. Um, and when it comes to leadership, you, you can't impart what you don't possess, right? So it, if you've got a growing organization that's looking to you for leadership and guidance that you don't possess, like that's going to be the bottleneck, mm -hmm. right? that at some point the bottleneck really can become, we can't bring on more people because we don't have the leadership structure. What typically happens to people is they get into a situation where they don't make the transition from tactical to strategic. Like the early, so there's this model that's extremely helpful of the early days. It, uh, it's like a sports model that there's these different stages of a leader and it's, you know, player, player, coach, coach, and then, you know, like commissioner or something, we'll say something or, or like something like that. Early on, when you're an entrepreneur, you're a player. Mm -hmm. If you're not throwing touchdown passes, they're not getting thrown, right? If you're not doing the blocking and tackling, it's not happening, Yeah. right? This is like ground zero. If you're successful, the business starts to grow, there starts to be more work and it's like, we gotta hire people. And you hire people, and now you're like a player coach. You're still needing to throw touchdown passes. Like, right, you're still needing to be on the field. Oh yeah. But at the same time, you're also providing guidance to the other players on the field. Like, hey, hey, you, you need to be in that hole. Hey, I need you to, you know, do this. So like, it's a coaching while doing with people, right? So at the first stage where you're the player, the tension is, man, if I just had some help, mm -hmm. right? I'm doing everything. I'm wearing 15 hats here. Then at the player coach level, there's this different tension that's like, gosh, I don't have any time to think, you know, like between all the things that I'm having to do and, you know, trying to coach all these people, if I just had some time to think, I'd be so much more effective. The next stage after that, we'll call coach, which is like, you're not on the field anymore. Pads are off. And your job is to just coach the players on the field. And what happens, it's super interesting, Chris, what happens is you do finally have the time to think and your ability to lead other people can grow, but this is where your own personal weakness can sabotage you. Mm. All of a sudden it's like, what am I even doing? I didn't accomplish anything today. I didn't cross anything off my to-do list. I just had six conversations. 
I don't, I don't feel like I did anything. And you can revert back to do over tactical work because it's what you know. And because it feels like you're accomplishing something when the real important work is developing the leaders who yeah. can lead on the field. Yeah. Right. And then there's even another one where it's like, hey, you jump from coach to like, you know, commissioner or something like that or whatever. And you can keep abstracting it all the way. And every time you make one of those transitions, it's really challenging. And the leader not making that transition can totally stunt the growth of the organization. That's powerful. Well, I mean, well said. I, I, I it, it begs the question, right, where that's an incredible lesson that comes from experience, uh, not just from observation. Yeah. And I, I just wonder what would be uh, maybe the number one thing that you would say to not uh, you know, Mike in the nonprofit world, but first startup, first leadership role, Mike, what would be the one thing that you'd be like, the most important thing you need to know or the most important thing you need to think about or what is the number one thing that you'd say back to that guy? Yeah, I, I think I would say you need more humility and you need more growth mindset. And I think I would go back and give myself that feedback at just about any any mm -hmm. step in my career that I would have benefited from more humility and I would have benefited from having an even deeper desire to to grow and develop. And, you know, going all the way back even into college, I was, uh, you know, kind of famous for, I, I had a couple classes. I literally only showed up on test day and I didn't open the book except for the night before the test and I got an A. And I, you know, I wore it like a badge of honor. And now I look back and I just think, what stupidity, you know, what a waste. Yeah. Like the person I cheated was myself. The fact that I had the ability to learn where I could do that. And then I just squandered it for years, mm -hmm. just skating. And so I see that going all the way back into like high school and college of like, man, I could have learned so much more. The humility piece is just um, leaders, developing leaders are really difficult because they're so excited about the future. Yeah. And because they're so excited about the future and they're so excited about leading, um, they can be very critical of whatever leadership they're under, you know, and I, I tried not to be, but I think there were certainly times along the way where I've been under other people's leadership that I've been overly critical because in my own mind, I would have done it better. Um, and that's not a helpful perspective yeah. at all. Um, and so I think as I've grown, you know, as we grow in humility, it makes us better leaders. It makes us more relatable. We're people that, you know, others want to be around. Uh, a really simple principle here is how much do I say I versus how much do I say we, mm -hmm. right? You know, and uh, continue to be on that path, and you know, continue to have days where it's like, man, I I want I want to continue to grow in this area. So there's a lot of areas I've mentioned, but those be the first two. Oh, that's powerful. You know, um, we've learned a lot about the company. Uh, we've learned uh, uh, some about you and how you think. I want to ask you some rapid fire questions sure. here to to learn a little bit more about you. Let's okay? go. All right, <clears throat> what would I find inside Mike Beck Beckham's tongue tumbler? Tumblr, uh, you would just, you'd find smoothies in my tumbler. You'd find water in my water bottle. Oh, that's great. Uh, what about inside uh, your cocktail shaker? My cocktail, I, you know, uh, unless I was on a trip to China, you probably wouldn't find anything in my cocktail shaker. I, I literally have one in my house. We have this great cocktail shaker and it, I don't think it's been used a single time. Why China? Uh, well, we, you know, we have manufacturers that we've worked with in China and like one of our manufacturers, he's really into very nice wine. And oh, so like, wow. I'm, I'm just not a drinker in general. And then I go on these business trips and like, he's bringing out all this nice wine and I'm just like, no more wine. So anyway, uh, not a, not a, a big, uh, cocktail 
guy. That's like a visit to Napa. You're like, I don't want any. Yeah, I'm done. Uh, how many simple modern cups do you think you have in your house? Uh, too many. Uh, you know, it's funny when we first started the company, it, it was like, these things are awesome. And I'm like hoarding them. And then, you know, now it's, it's almost like a biblical plague of like insulated drinkware. <laughs> like it's just everywhere I look, you know, um, I probably, uh, 150. All right. Well, okay. There you go. Well, which holiday other than Christmas time, do you see the biggest spike in sales? Uh, we, it depends on the, the, product we uh do really well in back to school which isn't actually a holiday but like uh we've done exceptionally well with with kids items uh and then we do we do really well like valentine's day mother's day stuff yeah. like that. all right, all right. Yeah. super cool yeah yeah uh what's the most uh speaking of feedback what's the most unusual product selection uh set? hold on i'm gonna re-ask that uh <laughs> speaking of feedback uh what's the most unusual product product suggestion you've ever received oh my i don't know i'd have to think about that uh there's there i i get a lot of inbound uh stuff that is uh interesting and questionable uh <laughs> <laughs> the the ideas abound i think once people see that you can make something they'll they'll bring ideas to you that are not necessarily uh relevant what's it's funny okay so I, this is this is actually like you know, when you work with manufacturers in, in other countries, they're making products for you, but they don't really understand the market the same way that you do. And so like, I remember one time I was having a conversation with um, someone that owned a pretty big business uh, overseas uh, manufacturing stuff. And I'm having what I think is like a very serious, like strategic conversation with him. You know, and there's a little bit of the language thing, but I'm, I'm feeling like we're really connecting. Yeah. And he's like saying, yeah, yeah, I understand. And then he's like, I want to show you something. I'm like, this is gonna be profound. I don't know what he's about to show me on his phone, but it's profound. And he literally pulls out his phone and it's a it's a water bottle with a fidget spinner on the side. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't I don't think actually we're having the same conversation right now. That is the best. Um, fidget spinner on the side, very trendy, very yes. trendy. Uh, so you're uh, an OU grad and, you know, repping the colors today. Um, who's the best OU quarterback of all time? Oh gosh. Um, I think I think most people would say that attitude they'd go with Baker, and uh, but I, I think Bradford for me is probably the best. Yeah. Like I remember, I was so into OU football during that period. I rewatched like every game one uh, one summer or something from that 08 season, and I counted like seven bad passes that he threw the entire season. It was just like amazing. It was That's an amazing season. He was so accurate. And he's a PC North Panther. So yeah, uh, represent. That's where I, I went to high school. So representing go. the high school. All right. Uh, well, when you're not out on the podcast circuit, um, where might we run into you any given weekend? Yeah, absolutely. So you're either going to see me out and around with my family. Uh, and um, I, I try to be really active in my kids' lives. Or, you know, you might bump into me on, on campus. Or you might catch me at a Thunder game where we just announced a partnership with the Thunder. Oh, I'm, that's great. I'm pretty fired up about uh, the, new, the new era of Thunder basketball. I'm a, I'm a Thunder fan and uh, OE football fan. Yeah, definitely. Well, which entrepreneur inspires you most? Man, that's great. You know, I, I really feel like I can learn from so many different entrepreneurs. Um, and then I, I kind of uh, shy away from the, the kind of full-throated hero worship of any. I mean, these are just people, you know. And this is one of the things, I, I mean, like, I am just a guy. Like, I, I, I feel like I've learned some things and I feel like, you know, I, I'm happy to share that, but like, I'm just a guy. Yeah. And so like, you know, Elon Musk is just a guy, you know, Bill Gates is just a guy. And these are people that have their own flaws. But I do try to learn from 
learn from the aspects of what other people have done. But you know what's interesting, and this goes back to like the, the feedback idea, there's, there's this kind of culture right now of like, oh, we gotta look at the five richest people and learn from them. It's like, man, if that is the way you're thinking about growth, that is so limited, right? Forget the survivorship bias. It's just like so limited. Like they're not situated like me at all. You know, like I want to be able to learn from my wife. I want to be able to learn, you know, from uh, the newest customer support hire at our company. I want to be able to learn from the guy that follows me on LinkedIn and gives a point of feedback about something I put, you know, it's like, that's what I want to, I want to learn from. So I, I think that I have an inherent admiration for anyone that is going through the entrepreneurial process, mm-hmm. that is putting themselves out there and is actually going through the process. And I feel like not only do I admire that, but I feel like I can learn from anyone that's going through the process. That's powerful. It's like the man in the arena. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I oh, love, love that quote. Yeah, so absolutely. Good. Uh, well, what's next for you or maybe Simple Modern? So the, the big uh, project right now is we are literally as we speak we are starting to make the first units and domestically for simple modern so we've invested oh that's awesome about six million dollars we're going to be able to make um, plastic water bottles domestically Uh, we have a program we're delivering for sam's club here in like a month and a half and so it's really exciting everybody on the team is going to work at least um, a day shift on the production line so it it's a, a really fun project to bring to fruition that we're bringing you know, jobs and manufacturing here and, and also going to make better products and be able to give a better value proposition to customers. So excited about that. Um, and, you know, continuing to lead a really quickly growing company, I thought that uh, maybe we would start to grow it a little bit more of a, um, I don't know, a slower rate. Uh, but next year looks like it's going to be a, a really massive growth year. We think um, that the company might grow 50% next year. And so, um, continuing to manage that. And and like I mentioned earlier, continuing to ask the question of like, okay, how do I have to grow? What does the next phase look like for me? There's obviously a lot more of like this kind of public figure stuff, which is still feels a little bit weird to me. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to kind of get accustomed to the, the new role of spokesperson that I need to play. Yeah, it means something to share. And I really appreciate you coming. Well done. Yeah, well absolutely. Done. Thanks for absolutely. having me. This was a great conversation. You bet. Thanks for coming. Hey!